Dear Heavenly Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus. And we, we adore You, God. We worship You. We worship You in and through Christ. We worship You. We come to You in that name. We approach Your throne, God, and I thank You that it is a throne of grace. We bless Your holy name, God, and we thank You for Your holy word that You have delivered and preserved for us and now by Your Holy Spirit it is illumined to us and we can read it and understand it and be changed by it, God, by Your Holy Spirit. We can obey it. And so, Father, I pray, God, that You would open our hearts and our minds and that we would learn of You, God, and that we would fall more deeply in love with You and that You would receive honor and praise, God, as we humble ourselves before Your Holy Word. And so I pray, Father, that You would please minister to us, God. We desperately need to hear from You. Lord, we need a fresh glimpse of Your glory. We need to behold You, God, in all of Your goodness, all of Your kindness, all of Your beauty and splendor of Your holiness. And Father, we have this confidence, God, that You will meet us here. And we praise You for that. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I've titled today's message, A Pattern Worth Imitating. A pattern worth imitating, and I'll explain kind of what I mean by that as we go. But you will recall that last week, as we opened the book of 1 Thessalonians and covered chapter 1, we talked about famous faith. The fame of the church there in Thessalonica had spread far and wide because of the amazing repentance that had happened there how they had received Paul when he came and they received the gospel of Christ and God moved in a very powerful way and, and they were just transformed. They were changed. And uh, it, the, the word of that had gone out. It had spread far and wide. And so we talked about having that kind of faith, that kind of repentance, famous faith. And you'll recall that we talked about how Paul had gone to this church. He planted this church in Thessalonica, and he was there for a very short time. And we don't know exactly how long. Some people believe that it was as short as three weeks that Paul was in Thessalonica. If, if you believe that he is there, was there for longer, and I think perhaps he was, it probably wasn't much longer. And so at any rate, he was there for a very short amount of time, and he was having a, a great impact in that place by the power of God and the gospel. But then he had to leave abruptly. He had to leave because you'll recall there was uh, people were actually recruited to stir up a, uh, a mob there in town, and, and Paul had to leave with very short notice. And he just could not shake. He could not shake this burden for this church, just wondering, you know, what was going on there? Were they going to stay the course? Were they going to be able to continue on in Jesus' name? Or was their labor purely in vain? Would it come to nothing? And so Paul sends Timothy back to further strengthen the church, but also to find a word of how the church is doing and to bring a report back to Paul and to let Paul know how things were going in Thessalonica there. Well, when Timothy came back to Paul, to Paul's amazement, they were thriving. They were thriving. Not only had they survived, but they were growing. They were flourishing. And as I said, word was going out all over the place at just how much God was moving there in their midst. Paul knew that this was clearly and undeniably a work of God. And we talked about that last week. He said, this is incredible. It is, couldn't be more clear to me that this is God's doing. 
that when we came and when we preached the gospel in your midst, you received it with full assurance and the conviction of the, the Holy Spirit because you are the elect of God, because God has called you out of darkness into His glorious light, and you guys are a living demonstration of that reality. And so that's what chapter 1 is, and Paul just really praises them. He, he really pours out all kinds of blessing and commendation, and he, he talks about their character and their conduct there in the church. And really there's, I think, five ways that you could describe this church there in Thessalonica. One, Paul said they were teachable receivers. They received the word with all gladness, and they were very teachable, very teachable. They were noble imitators. You know, they, they, they received, they believed, but then they walked this stuff out. They actually imitated the example of Paul and Christ, ultimately. They were missional proclaimers. Not only did they believe, not only were they, were they uh, imitators, but they were also, also uh, mission-minded, and they had a great impact on other people, so they were missional proclaimers. Not only that, they were transformed worshipers. They were transformed worshipers. They had turned from the, their dead idolatry to the true and the living God, and they had repented, and they were changed. They were transformed worshipers. And lastly, I would say they were faithful waiters. Their priority was awaiting the return of Christ from heaven, the one that would deliver them from the wrath to come. And so they were waiting faithfully and patiently on the Lord. And so all of these things really describe the church there in Thessalonica, and really you see all of those come out in chapter 1. And so you could give this church an A+. You know, if we were grading churches, I don't know that God grades churches as it were. I know in Revelation, Jesus certainly has some things to say about the condition of the churches there. But as far as we can see, I would say you could give this church an A+, because all of these things could be said of them. But then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 1 and 2, and then 9 and 10, he says this, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So what Paul is essentially saying is you guys are doing it. You've got this. You are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and now just do it more. Just keep doing it. Keep moving forward. And so that was really Paul's assessment of the church there in Thessalonica. It's a beautiful church, a glorious church. And it's something that's really neat is these were very young believers. And so as a young believer or a new believer, this would be a great book to study because of the things that Paul has to say to these believers. This is very intentional by the Spirit of God and to this very young church. Well, that was chapter one. Now Paul kind of transitions into chapter two. He's going to begin to rehearse his own character and his own conduct while he was there in their midst. Now, in these 12 verses that we're going to be studying today, in these 12 verses, we're going to see six times statements like, you yourselves know, you were witnesses, you remember. And so that's very much of a theme of this portion of Scripture. Paul is pointing back to 
his conduct, his character, his pattern of ministry when he was there in their midst. You see, there was no shortage of religious charlatans in that day, and there really isn't in the day and age that we live in either. But as such, it was really easy everywhere that Paul went for his enemies to try to lump him in with these, with these different false teachers and somehow discredit his character and ministry. And that, that did happen. False teachers would often try to challenge Paul's apostleship, challenge his motives, challenge his, his character and his conduct, and by discrediting him, they could really do damage to the church and, and try to recruit people to themselves, essentially. That, that, uh, that's really, in large part, what, what was often going on there. And so, Paul would have to kind of speak to that. He would have to remind the guys, don't, don't be deceived. Don't let these people come in and pull you away Remember how I cared for you when I was there in your midst. Remember how I carried myself while I was there in your midst. Leon Morris, the Bible commentator, in his commentary he cites W. Neal about that culture and the religiosity of that day, and it says this, that there has probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. East and West had united and intermingled to produce an amalgam of real piety, crude superstition and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, and local godlings competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots, and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. I love that quote, to read that a few times to really wrap your, your head around that. But he's just saying that it was, the culture was such that there were so many types of religions and, and pagan religions and magicians and astrologers and just on and on it went. And everybody was kind of competing for prominence and to try to get the attention of the people. Rome was real lax. They, they really believed that there are many gods. You can worship all the gods. You should worship all the gods. And, and so this just really created an atmosphere where everybody was, uh, was really competing uh, for prominence with whatever it was that they were trying to push forth here. And so it would be really easy for a false teacher to come along and say, Paul's just one of those guys. Don't listen to him. There's no reason why you should give give any real thought to his message, his gospel message, because he's just one of these guys. And so it appears that Paul is, is in this chapter reminding them of his kindness, his care, his love, his sincerity, the power of God working through him when he was there in his midst. And so in a lot of ways, uh, what we see here is um, just a, a portrait or a picture of a Christian minister, a a legitimate, sincere, God-called, Spirit-empowered minister of the gospel. And I would also say that what we see here is a pattern worth imitating. You know, last week I had read this verse in Philippians 3.17 where Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now that was true of the Christians in Thessalonica. They, they, they walked as Paul walked. They walked as Christ walked. Paul was an example to them, and there were others who also had this pattern. Paul said, you need to note those people and follow them as you have a pattern. 
And that's exactly what the church in Thessalonica did. And I think now Paul kind of tells us in plain language what that pattern is. Paul now describes for us the pattern that they are called to follow. And that's what we're going to see in our text. This is Paul's example, Paul's pattern, and it is a pattern worth imitating. And it's really three, three simple points. We're going to see Paul's courage, Paul's courage in God. Second point, we're going to see Paul's motives. They were pure, Paul's pure motives. And then thirdly, we're going to see Paul's approach to ministry. It's relational. Paul had a relational approach to ministry. This is a pattern worth imitating. Courage, purity of motives, and a relational approach one to another, and our influence one of another. And so with that, we'll pick up in our text. Point number one, Paul had confidence and courage in his service to God. Paul had confidence and courage in his service to God. Verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So here begins this pattern where Paul says, For you yourselves know. You yourselves know. I think three times he says that specifically. And in fact, he says it twice here, once in verse 1 and once in verse 2. And so he's pointing back to the fact that, look, you don't have to go on hearsay. You remember, I was there. You remember very clearly how I conducted myself when I was there with you. And he says, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. And that is to say that it was not without result. When Paul came and he touched down there with the gospel and he preached the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, there was power in that place by the Spirit of God. The Word of God went out. And God began to sovereignly save people and change people. It was undeniable. And, and Paul says, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. And he says, even after we suffered and were spitefully treated in Philippi. And he points back, remember Paul first came through Philippi. And there was the church that was started there with Lydia, the seller of purple, and presumably that slave girl that Paul had uh, set free from her demon possession, and then the jailer and the jailhouse there, and uh, God was doing some awesome things there, but Paul had to leave abruptly from there, and then he made his way into Thessalonica, and he says, in Philippi, I suffered, and I was spitefully treated. This is really two different aspects. One, the, the suffering there, it's it's almost always used of physical pain, physical harm, physical suffering. And that Paul, there was no shortage of that for him. But then there was this being spitefully treated. And this could be legal abuse or uh, the public humiliation that Paul experienced there in Philippi and his arrest and um, being flogged and, and all of that. And so Paul says that we were we suffered physically and we were publicly humiliated. You know, sometimes I don't know which is worse. I mean, physical pain, obviously none of us want that, but humiliation, there's just something about that, that public humiliation, being, being just humiliated like that. And Paul said, look, we didn't let that stop us. Paul said, we did not let that stop us. We suffered pain and embarrassment in Philippi, but then we came to you and we were bold in our God. We were bold in our God 
to preach the gospel to you in much conflict. That word conflict, it's agon, it's, it's agony, you know, and, and, and Paul said in the midst of that, we preach the gospel in Philippi and we preach the gospel to you, regardless of the conflict, regardless of the suffering, regardless of the humiliation, Paul was bold in his God to preach the gospel. That kind of boldness, that kind of confidence, that kind of courage, that is something that, that we have in God through His Spirit. We're called to be bold. You know, when, when we have confidence in God, when we have Godfidence, right, where is your confidence placed? Where does your confidence lie? And this confidence, it's, it's this expectation, they expect God's faithfulness. They expect God's provision. They expect God is going to glorify himself through them. And there is this great confidence that Paul always had. Paul said, look, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I know that he is able. He is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. God is faithful. God is able. And Paul had the highest confidence in God, and that produced courage that produced courage. Courage, as you know, is not the absence of fear. To be courageous does not mean to be fearless. It means to resolve to act despite fear. Even in the midst of fear, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to honor God. You're going to speak forth the gospel. You're going to serve Him boldly regardless of the outcome. And that was the way that Paul operated. That was his confidence. That was his courage. That was his character. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I really, I want to live boldly. I want to live my life boldly for God. <clears throat> I don't want to get to the end of my life having played it as safely as I possibly could the whole time and then wish I would have taken more risks. You know what I mean? Because we do. We play it safe. We're very concerned about security. We're very concerned about comfort, safety, very worried about the future. You know, I, I drove past this church sign one time in Tennessee, <clears throat> and it says something to the effect of all the what-ifs that we worry about in life very rarely happen. And I think that's a true statement. We spend our lives paralyzed by the what-ifs, always afraid of this particular thing, and it may look very different from person to person, but always the what-ifs. We filter all of our decision-making through this what-if. Is it just me? I mean, maybe, maybe you can relate with me on this. I don't want to live my life like that because I don't want to find at the end of my life I wasted my life because I wasn't more bold in God, because I didn't have more courage in God. I saw a uh, sermon one time on YouTube, and this pastor uh, had this illustration uh, where he had a balance beam up on the stage. And so he, he got up on the balance beam, and he's kind of walking on it, and he, he's talking about how that's in, in some ways very much like the Christian life, and you start to have turbulence in life, you know. Uh, tragedy strikes, you step out in faith, and maybe things don't go the way that you'd hoped they would, and, and then you begin to kind of like play it, play it a little more carefully. And as he's walking on the beam, he actually sits down on the beam, and then he kind of lays on the beam, and then he's like clutched on the beam. And then he says, and then your greatest dream in life is that you'll just die in your sleep, and it'll be very painless, and then you'll just wake up, and you'll be in the presence of God. And then he kind of climbs off the beam and then does this like celebration 
jump like uh like someone uh who an acrobat or whatever someone who would jump off the beam and he's like now if a judge was sitting there scoring that what would they do you know he was like what are they supposed to say to that and he said in a very real way one day we are going to wake up in front of the creator the judge almighty and he's going to say what was that you know, well done. You played it as safely as you could possibly play it in this life. You took no risks. You had no boldness, no courage in me. You didn't step out in faith whatsoever. You know, what's he supposed to say to that? And I don't want that to be true of me. And I know you don't want that to be true of you. And I want to have that kind of confidence, the kind of confidence that Paul had and uh, in whatever way it is that God is calling us, and it looks very different from person to person. It looks very different. It's not always the same. But whatever it is, whatever God's calling you to do, be bold in Him. Go for it. Step out in faith. Serve the Lord. You know, this whole what-if thing, oftentimes it never happens, but even if it does, so what? Even if it does. And I, I can't help but think of Daniel chapter 3. And you know the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar erects this golden statue of himself that everybody is to worship, and they refuse to worship. And so it says here in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If, uh, if that is the case, our God, he said he's going to throw them in the fiery furnace, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They said, look, our God can deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he does not deliver us, we're not going to worship. We're not going to worship you, and we're not going to worship your false gods. Now, that's boldness. That's boldness right there. You know, oftentimes we think, God, I hope God delivers me from this. And then if something happens and it, he doesn't and it gets hard, we start thinking, God, where are you at? You know, we start to question or challenge God's goodness. There's none of that here. Even if God does not deliver them, God is good. And they're not going to worship or bow down to another God, even if that means death. And that's boldness right there, folks. That's the kind of boldness that Paul served with. He said, we were bold in our God when we came to you preach, to preach the gospel of God in much conflict. And so Paul reminds them of that. And so with that, now you go into uh, the second point. Paul begins to talk about his motives. You know, in a lot of ways, that boldness was born out of his motives. And he had pure motives in his service to God. And this is what he did, it's how he did it, and it's why he did it. And those are all very important. What we do matters. How we do it matters, but why we do it also matters. Okay? And so Paul could point to his motives here. And the first thing, under point number 2a, he said it was not for you, first and foremost, but it was for God. Not for you, first and foremost, but for God. Verse 3, he says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. 
So he says, our exhortation, our instruction to you. He said, it did not arise from error, that is false teaching or heresy. Paul did not come to them with false doctrine, false teaching. He said, it did not come from error. He said, nor did it come from uncleanness. Now, this word is very closely linked to, uh, to the idea of sexual perversion. And that was a very real part of pagan idolatry in that culture. And the false teachers that would come in oftentimes were trying to lure people away for their own, for their own deviant purposes. And so Paul assured them, you know that our, our motives were pure. We didn't come, we weren't trying to lure you away for any, any unclean and pure reason. And he said, nor did our exhortation arise from a place of deceit. That word deceit there, it's literally like, um, a fish hook or a trap or trick. You know, the thing about a fishing lure, to the fish it looks really good. He doesn't know. And he's drawn away by it until he bites and then he's, he's the fisherman's he has him. You know, he, he took the bait. And Paul said it wasn't that at all. We didn't come promising you something though we had every intention of delivering something else. You know, um, there was no duplicitousness there. Paul was very, very pure in his motives, and his instruction was very pure. <clears throat> it did not come from a place of uncleanness or deceit or error. He was sincere. He was sincere, and he was bringing to them the God-honest truth, and he was bringing them the pure gospel, and he was bringing it to them for the right reason, because he says, we have been approved by God. He had been called by God to this very thing. He was validated from God. Paul had his validation from God. He didn't need it from man. Paul was sufficient in Christ, and Paul was on a mission for Christ, and Paul was going to serve God no matter what. And he says we were entrusted with the gospel. Paul had a stewardship. So Paul said, look, we didn't come to you with error, uncleanness, deceit, because I have been called by God, validated by God, entrusted with the gospel by God, and it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. Faithful. And so Paul was a faithful servant of God with the gospel of God. And knowing that, Paul could say, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. That was First and foremost, God's goal, or Paul's goal was pleasing God over and above pleasing anybody else. Okay, so that was Paul's motive. His allegiance, first and foremost, was to God. And that's the way it has to be, folks. Where does your allegiance lie? What are your motives? Is it to please God or is it to please other people? Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Sometimes those two things are diametrically opposed. Sometimes you cannot please men and please God at the same time. And if you've got to make a decision, you always please God. Always. And that was Paul's mission. That was his motive. And he was going to please God even if it meant that he was going to enter into much conflict and suffer for it. Even if it meant that he was going to lose followers because the message that he had was not attractive. Whatever the case was, Paul's goal first and foremost was to please God. And so it wasn't, it wasn't to, uh, to try to lure people away or, or anything like that. It was to please God and he knew he had to answer to God. And he said, it's God that tests our hearts. God tests the heart. And that's serious. And Paul knew that he was going to have to answer to the judge. 
and that he had been commissioned and entrusted and that these people God had given into his care. And so Paul took this very seriously. He said, look, my conduct was good, my character was good, but the reality is I answer to a much higher authority. I answer to God Almighty, and he has entrusted me with the gospel, and he has entrusted you to me. And so Paul took that very seriously. He could stand before the Lord and say his motives were right. And then B, under motives, Paul said, first Paul said that it was not so much for you as it was for God. And then B, he says that it was not for me, but for you. I didn't do what I did for me. I did it for you. That was Paul's motivation. Verse 5, he says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. So Paul said, look, we didn't use flattering words when we were in your midst. Paul didn't come with flattering words. Now, what is this flattering words? I'll tell you what it is. It's telling somebody what they want to hear so that they will give you what you want. That's flattery. Telling somebody what they want to hear so they will give you what you want. Paul said, we didn't do that. Paul said, God is witness and he tests our hearts. When we came to you, we did not come with flattering words. We didn't tell you what you wanted to hear just so that you would give us what we wanted, as it were. And he says, nor did we have a cloak for covetousness. That is to say, we didn't have covetousness that was concealed. We didn't have ulterior motives. He said, we didn't want what you had. We didn't come here to get from you. You didn't have anything that we wanted. It was not about Paul. It was about them. And so he said, we didn't come with flattering words, and we didn't come with, with ulterior motives. We didn't come with covetousness concealed. And he says, nor did we seek glory from men. Paul didn't do what he did for stuff, and Paul didn't do what he did for applause or for elevation. God didn't, or Paul, excuse me, keep getting back and forth there. Paul did not come to be glorified by those Thessalonians there. He didn't want their stuff. He didn't come with flattering words. He was not covetousness. He was not covetous, and he did not want to be elevated. He didn't want glory from men. He wanted glory for God. He wanted glory to God. And so Paul said, I did what I did first and foremost for God, not you. But then secondly, I did for you, not for me. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Okay. So it was Paul's motives, and that's good. That's really good. That's good motives right there. First and foremost, what we do in this life is for the glory of God. It is for Him. It is for the praise of His glorious grace. It is for His great name and for His good pleasure. Even if that means we have to break ranks with everybody else around us, it is for God. But then secondly, in our service especially, it is not for us, it's for each other. Amen? That's what we exist to serve and to bless one another in Jesus' name. And that's why Jesus could say, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so our Lord himself, that was his, that was his method of operation. He served other people. And so Paul could say that about himself. And now lastly, third point, Paul had a relational approach in his service to the church. 
Paul had a relational approach, and that is so important. He said, I came to you as a mother, and I came to you as a father. You can really be a lot more productive on a relational level, you know. When I was really, you know, young in the faith and aspiring to be a pastor, I used to, I, I was influenced by men that were just real, uh, real domineering, authoritative. Uh, I used to call them cowboy gangster pastors, you know. I mean, it just, and I, I looked up to that, and I thought that was the way it was supposed to be. And, and sometimes, I mean, you know, God forgive me, I even acted like that, and I did damage. And my wife, you know, praise God, she really, she really encouraged me and helped me to realize in a lot of ways that that is all bad, all bad. And so I've come to realize that, man, it's gentleness, it's love, it's kindness, it's care, it's relational, you know. It's not wielding a hammer. And, uh, and so... Paul said that when I was in your midst, I came as a, as a mother, I came as a father, I came relationally. In uh, 6b there, the latter part of verse 6, he says, When we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Now I think the reason why I included the last part of verse 6 and, and 7 here is because he's making kind of a distinction between these two these two different ends here. You know, we could have come, I could have come as an apostle of Christ making demands on you, but I was gentle. I was gentle. This word, uh, but, you know, but here, but we were gentle. Um, I'm get a little, little bit of grammar here. This is an adversative conjunction. Did you know that? It's an adversative conjunction, and I don't know what that means. I just know that it means basically on the other hand. That's the idea. So Paul is saying, I could have come as an apostle of Christ, but instead I didn't. On the other hand, it's the extreme other end. I could have come wielding authority. I had the right and the ability, but I didn't. Instead, I came graciously and gently and lovingly as, as a mother. And we see this in Philemon. I love this. In Philemon, when Paul writes this letter to Philemon about Onesimus, and he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon's house, and Philemon, Onesimus had wronged Philemon. It appears he had stolen from him and then left and booked it out of town. And Paul said, I want you to receive him back. But he says this. He says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you being such a one as Paul the aged, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I am appealing to you for love's sake. He said, I, I could come demanding of you what is right, what is fitting. I could tell you what to do and expect you to do it. But he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let you make the decision, and I'm going to ask you graciously, and I'm going to ask you lovingly. And you know what? I'm confident you're going to do the right thing. See, that was Paul's approach. And he says this, as Paul the aged, and now also Paul the prisoner. He was getting on up there in years. And there's something about that, I think, oftentimes years will do that to people. I think we can be real hotheads when we're young, youthful, you know, short fuse. As you get a little older, you get a little more uh, even-keeled. And so Paul says, I'm appealing to you in love as Paul the aged, and now Paul's also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's approach. 
And then this, this little word here, he says, among you, but we were gentle among you. Now, it'd be real easy to pass that by. But what that, what that means is in the midst of you. In Luke chapter 2, remember when Jesus' parents, the, the, they went to worship there in Jerusalem and they went back. He was just a child and they thought that he was in the caravan and they realized that he was not. And so Mary and Joseph, they went back to Jerusalem and they found him there in the temple with the rabbis. Remember that? And he said, I must be about my father's business. There in Luke 2, 46, it says, Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. That's that same word, in the midst, both listening to them and asking them questions. And that, that's the idea. When Paul was there, he was in the midst of the people. He was with the people. He was right in the middle, and the people were all around him. Paul was in community with these folks. He wasn't high and lifted up. He wasn't exalted. He didn't just appear and then disappear. He actually lived life with these folks. As long as he was there, he shared his life with them. You know, pastors, they make this mistake sometimes. They just appear on stage, and then they disappear after the sermon, and you'll never see them again until they magically reappear next Sunday. And that's all bad. That's all bad. The pastor needs to be in the midst of the people. That's why I love to I love before and after the service here. That is such a sweet time for me. It's when we're all together, and I will oftentimes be out there because it's the only time I can look every single one of you in the eyes as you're coming by. I just want to see your face. I want to greet you, and I wish that I had more time to spend with you guys before and after. And, you know, I just want you to know as a pastor to, to you guys, I love you, and I want to spend more time with you, and I want you to know that you can come to me anytime. You can call me, email me, text me. If you don't have my number, I want to give you my number. But I always want to be available to you. I always want to be available to you. And, and I wish that I were more so. And I, I desire to have more interaction with you than I do right now. So I just want you to know that's my heart. And so I don't want you to ever feel like you can't or shouldn't. I desire more of that. So, so by all means, please, people, reach out to me. Um, and I want to be available here. And I don't want it just to be you having to reach out to me. I want to be here and engaging and interacting with you as well. And that was Paul's heart. He was in the midst of the people. And he said that he, as a, as a nursing mother, cherishes uh, her own children. So did he. And then just one more thing. Um, he says, we were. Uh, in the New American Standard, it says we proved to be. We proved to be among you uh, as, a, as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Now, in the New American Standard, I said it, it's, it proved to be, and this also is what is called a collective historical aorist, more of the grammar. And what this means this is really fascinating to me. The idea here is that it is a series of events that took place over a period of time. It's like snapshots. A snapshot of this scene, a snapshot of this scenario, a snapshot of this, this activity here with Paul, all collected together and put into an album, and there is this theme. There is this theme that, that comes forth as you put it all together. That's the idea here of, I prove to be, it's consistency. Over and over and over, snapshot after snapshot after snapshot, you know this to be the case. I prove to be one who was amongst you, one who was gentle with you, one who loved you and nurtured you, who brought warmth and protection as a mother does her own child. So there was this consistency with Paul, the sincerity with Paul, this availability that was there with Paul. 
That was all very much a part of his relational ministry amongst the people there. Verse 8, he says, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. He says, so affectionately longing for you. This intense love, this intense love for the brothers and the sisters there, that, that was in Paul's heart. He said, we were well pleased. That is, he wanted to share with them. He wanted to share the gospel and his life with them. It wasn't begrudging. It wasn't, I guess so, I guess I have to, I guess it comes with the, the, the job. No, he was like, it, we were well pleased. We desired to love you and to be with you and to impart the gospel of God. That was the greatest thing that Paul could do in love was bring them the gospel of God. And, and he brought that to them. But not only that, Paul said, not only that, but our own lives. Paul gave of his life. He gave of himself to the people. He said, because you have become very dear to us. It was for love's sake. He said, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And there it is again. You remember. You remember. He said, our labor and toil night and day. Paul worked to exhaustion. He worked sacrificially. Paul worked to meet his own needs uh, physically, but then he also worked to, to meet their needs spiritually. And so that he would not be a burden to them. And that, again, is just a big difference between Paul and a lot of the other shucksters that came into the town there in the name of religion. Paul, Paul did what he had to do to be able to minister to them. And, I mean, I could go on and tell some great stories. I think Pastor Bill was just such a great example of that to me. Um, but for the sake of time, I must keep moving. But uh, Paul was willing to do whatever it took to be able to minister. Paul was willing to do whatever it took. And it was, he was willing to sacrifice and to give of his own life to be able to love these people and bless these people. And now he says, as a father, verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So he says, you are witnesses. There it is again. You saw this. And God also how we behaved among you. He said, we were devout. That is, we were holy. These were holy men. They were distinct. They were different. You could tell that there was something different about Paul and his guys. These guys were the real deal. They were holy. They were devout. He said that we acted justly, uprightly, some translations say. They were righteous in their conduct and character, and they did right by the people there in Thessalonica. And then he says we were blameless. And this speaks of reputation. The word blameless means nothing will stick accusations can be railed but their reputation is such that you know it's not true you give them the benefit of the doubt because their character is so proven that you're like no that ain't right that can't be right i, re I reject that that was the kind of reputation that paul had and he says as you know as the father does with his own children we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you this exhortation it, it literally is to come alongside paul didn't push Paul came alongside, he put his arm around them and said, let's walk together. That's the idea here of exhortation. He comforted him. This is encouragement. It's not chastisement. It's not guilt. It's encouragement. And then he charged every one of them. This is imploring, testifying, witnessing, warning. Paul was straight with, with the folks there. He told them the truth, the God, God's honest truth. And he, he charged them to keep the standard 
as a father, as a father would his own children, he did this. And with the goal, verse 12, that they would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. His goal in all of this was that they would walk worthy of God. Paul came boldly with the gospel. Paul came with the right motives. And Paul came with a relational approach in that, to the end that they would walk worthy of God who calls them into his own kingdom and glory. That they should walk. This is that they would conduct themselves. That they would live their lives this way. How worthy of God that is consistent with the one that you claim to be the child of. See, some people say I'm a child of God, but I see no family resemblance. You know, I mean, we want to look like our Heavenly Father. And you know what I mean when I say that. The Bible tells us the heart of God and the commands and the law of God. And, and Jesus exemplified that perfectly. And we should, we should be seeking to look like Him and to talk and walk and act like Him and to obey and love and serve Him. And that, that is to, to be a child of God and to resemble God. That is to walk worthy of God. And that was Paul's goal. That was Paul's aim, that they would do that. And then he says, the one who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The one that calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, folks, we have been called out of the darkness. We've been called out of the kingdom of darkness. And we have been called into the kingdom of light. And we have this hope of glory. Paul said, that is the goal that you would walk worthy of the God who called you out of darkness and into light. Folks, we've been called out of the darkness. We were slaves in the kingdom of darkness, and we have been rescued. We have been delivered by God Almighty. We have been called out of darkness into His glorious light. And Paul says you ought to walk like it. Walk like it. And so at this point, we're going to transition over, transition over to our uh, Lord's Supper. And I think this is a perfect place to go there as we reflect on what God has done in delivering us out of darkness and into His light. That's exactly what Christ did. That's what Christ did at the cross. You know, that's what His body being broken and His blood being poured out represents. Um, it represents so much, but just to, just to really narrow this down, it, Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered so that we would not have to suffer. Jesus paid the price so that we would not have to pay the price. Jesus satisf satisfied the wrath of God so that we would not have to suffer under the wrath of God, something that we could never satisfy in an eternity of eternities, we would never be able to satisfy God's righteous wrath and suffering in hell. But Jesus did. Jesus did it there upon the cross because such was the worth of the sacrifice that he made. He was truly the Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, the one and only who was able to live a perfect life, to keep God's law perfectly, the way that none of us ever have or ever will. One man has done that, the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God. He kept God's law perfectly in every point. And the one who deserved exaltation and glory, instead he got humiliation and suffering and mocking and rejection and scorn as he was nailed upon that sinner's cross there and he was the, the, the mockers and the scoffers called out. 
from the crowd. Jesus suffered. He didn't deserve it. We deserve it. But he suffered in our stead. He suffered in our stead, the just for the unjust, so that his righteousness would be a gift to us who believe on the name of Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then he rose again. He died on that cross, that cursed tree. And he rose again from the grave, declaring victory. Victory over sin, victory over Satan, victory over death itself. And he set the captives free. Amen? That's us. We were captives. We were captives of darkness. We were captives in the kingdom of darkness. And we were slaves to sin. And Jesus set us free through his death, burial, and resurrection. He has called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And then we've been given this gift, the sacrament of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And as often as we do this, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. And Paul said that as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we celebrate the fact that by his wounds we have been healed. Amen. We celebrate the fact that because he has risen, we too shall rise. We celebrate that hope every time we come to the Lord's Supper. And we examine ourselves when we come to the table. We say, Lord, search me, show me if there be any way in me, anything that I need to confess, anything that I need to repent of. This is the time to do that. It's a time of worship, a time of reflection, a time of celebration, a time of thanksgiving. As we praise our Savior, our glorious Savior, that He was willing to pay that price that he was willing to suffer and to die, that he was willing to give his body to be broken for us there on Calvary, and that he was willing to pour out his blood to the death so that our sins could be washed away forevermore, never to be remembered again, removed as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus did that for us, and he said as often as we partake of this, we do it in remembrance of him, remembering that, celebrating the fact that our Savior has called us out of darkness into His glorious light. So we're going to have a song. Pastor Joe's going to come up and lead us in a song of worship. I'll encourage you guys to come forward and to get a cup of juice and a, and a cracker there and go back to your seat. After the song, we'll, uh, we'll partake together. And um, yeah, so let's just worship the Lord. And as I said, if you have some sin to confess, confess it repent, turn. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I would encourage you not to partake. Just, just this is for the, for the believer. This is for the believer. But you can know Christ. If you don't know Him, if you've never called upon His name, and you want to be saved, you can do that right where you sit. Or anybody who's watching from home or who may be outside, you can call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. You can say, Jesus, please forgive me. Jesus, please save me. Jesus, please take my life. I want to bow the knee. I want to surrender unto you, Lord Jesus. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The Bible says we have this confidence and this hope.